Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. Today, it, it should be a treat. I'm looking forward to this episode being a real treat for a few different reasons. Um, first of all, I should introduce myself. I'm Craig, your host, of course, as you know. And with me today is Travis Baldry. Travis, how are you? I'm doing fabulous. How are you? You know what? I'm doing pretty fabulous as well. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, this should be a fun one. People know you, Travis, for a few different reasons, but uh, most lately, you know, since what was it, 2022, I think, when yeah. uh, Legends and Lattes came out and was a surprise smash success. Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody listening to the sound of my voice has read it. And if they haven't, they should, right? Yeah, not, so, not more surprising to anybody <laughs> than it was to me. And I, yeah, and I, I, I guess that could sound like a dig on the book. I didn't mean it that way. It's just nobody saw no, it coming. It's yeah, just, it is. I certainly did not. So, <laughs> so um, it, it was a big, uh, I, I would say Legends and Lattes might be the success story of the pandemic in the fantasy sci-fi world. How, how fair would that be? I, I don't know. Um, I, it feels like there's been a few different unexpected successes during the pandemic because everybody sort of changed what they needed right out of media um so boy did i watch a lot of the great british bake-off during the pandemic and um it's like I, the the kind of media that i wanted to experience was just dramatically different than before you know the the topic we're going to be talking about your experience as an audiobook narrator and moving into uh, your role as a writer now and that so i i do want to say, yes, we are going to be talking about that. The title of the episode did not lie to you. Uh, but I do want to chase this rabbit around the track just a little bit longer because it strikes me with, uh, as I was going through Legends and Lattes, um, how appropriate to the time it was and how <laughs> we have these patterns as human beings that are uh, that are forgettable but utterly predictable. So if you go back to like the late 90s, um, when, you know, Francis Fukuyama was talking about the end of history, the fall of the Soviet Union uh, 10 years ago means that now like the we have this new world peace and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the 90s were a time of uh, of a lot of contentment. Uh, and well, well let's, let's just leave it there. It, it was a it was a, a generally positive time in Western culture, and the media that we created kind of filled the void, or seemed to fill the void of we need tension, we need yeah. uh, anger, we need violence, we need whatever. So that's when like the explosion of grimdark kind of begins uh, in the late nineties. Splatterpunk <laughs> in that in that there you time go. too, yeah. And uh, and now we get to you know fast forward twenty twenty five years, we have a pandemic going on. And everybody's like, I cannot take any more darkness, difficulty, drama. Give me legends and lattes. And uh, what it's uh, what's it described as uh, high fantasy with low stakes. Yeah. Uh, it's charming, fun, easy. It's like the Great British Bake Off, right? Yep, exactly. So it, um, did you have was, any of that in mind? Were you trying to write something for the time or did it just kind of come out? I was way? writing it for me. I was writing yeah. it for me. Um, I certainly didn't expect anybody else would actually enjoy it or read it but because i'm a narrator my um i'm generally cast for kind of high stakes stuff so it's mm. usually obvious it's often a power fantasy with a lot of like escalating stakes and fighting gods and demons and monsters and um generally just high tension overall 
And as a narrator, you end up doing a lot of the same things because that's how people come to, to recognize you. You get typecast by genre. So it was just the last thing I wanted at the time. It was like, I'm reading this every single day for months on end, thousands of hours of this. And I just, I, I, I just want, I was, I was actually joking in my discord where I work live. And I said, what I really want is a Hallmark movie set in the forgotten realms. That's what I need right now. <laughs> that would be pretty good. You know what? And I, I love that idea. And that's kind of, that is what you get with legends and lattes, isn't it? Where you have this backdrop, you have something crazy going on, uh, behind everything, but you're focused in on something more charming and intimate. And, uh, yeah, yeah it's nice that way. All right. So, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that this would this episode would be a treat for a few different reasons. One of the other reasons is, as you mentioned, you uh, are an audiobook narrator. You've been doing this for a long time. You've got a lot of credits to your name. Uh, and so people should enjoy a much nicer voice than my own with decent <laughs> audio quality. And like, oh, I'm just looking forward to putting this episode together where your video is going to look crisp and your audio is going to be perfect. And yeah, so I, I yeah, hope I've people enjoy Yeah, got a live VSD stack going here just to make sure everything is properly, <laughs> <laughs> properly pre-mastered for you. So how how did you, because I, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm talking to you as somebody who took voiceover classes in college and I love, uh, I, I've worked in radio before. I've been doing podcasting. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable in front of microphones, but I haven't ever done the uh, audiobook narration thing, at least not for fiction. Um, how did you get into it? Why did you get into it? How long have you been doing it? And yeah, let's, let's just do a little bio with your narration. Okay. So, um, it's nothing I ever planned to do. I have no theater background, no acting background and no VO background at all. Um, I made video games for decades. My original career was a software engineer. Uh, I did read to my family an awful lot. Um, and there came a point where they didn't really need that from me. And I, I've always enjoyed audiobooks. Um, and I had assembled some of the equipment to do VO recording for game development so that I didn't have to rent studio space. So I had it. And I stumbled across ACX, which is the service that Amazon Audible runs to facilitate making audiobooks for indie authors or small pubs and narrators and get them subsequently published on Audible. And I decided to give it a shot. And it turned out that I really liked it. So for years, I did it on the side while I was still developing video games. And there came a point where I just decided, you know what, I, I like this more. I would prefer to spend my time doing this because it's, um, it's really rewarding. And it's a it's a huge contrast to game development, in terms of what it feels like to actually do, mm -hmm. and how enjoyable it is to ship or complete a project and your interaction with um, the people who consume what you make. So I, I switched to doing it. Um, I, uh, I, that sounds really, that sounds really abrupt, but I, um, <laughs> I, it just felt like something natural to do that I enjoy doing and people responded well to me doing it. So I stuck with it and I, I have not regretted it. You know, it, as you're talking about quitting game development to do that, uh, or, well, I guess quitting the day to day, right? You're still involved in it in some capacity, I suppose. Nope. Not really. Not really. Oh, I, I, I still, I still co-own my company, right? But I haven't written a line of code in I don't know how many years, oh, and yeah. it's, uh, I, I just have not really looked back. But I, I kind of want to ask you about why you prefer this, and and let me float a theory 
And that is that um, when you are, you, you talked about the satisfaction of shipping off a finished product. Uh, well, when mm-hmm. you're doing an audiobook, uh, it is collaborative in that you you need to be in touch with the author about what they're looking for and uh, the, the type of narration you're doing. You're sending back and forth samples, presumably. Uh, but for the most part, you're sitting in your studio, you're recording it, you edit it together and send a finished product off. It's much more solitary than something like game development. Uh, that is really dependent on a lot of collaboration. Gee, many Christmas, that is a big jet going right over my house. <laughs> uh, you're really dependent on that collaboration uh, on a much more regular day-to-day basis. Was mm-hmm. that part of the frustration? Do you like working alone? Is that uh, well, what role did so, that play? Um, maybe some role, but I've worked at... So one of the studios I, I, the biggest studio I was ever at that I ran was, uh, was Runic Games. We made Torchlight. I think we got to like 32 was the maximum size we ever hit, which is not a large game development studio. That was the largest game development studio I've ever been at. Um, for one of the games, there were two of us and we seldom saw each other because one of us lived in San Francisco and I worked by myself in an office. <laughs> yeah. And then the last studio I had was we got up to five. So I think there were, you know three of us in the office at any given time. So it was still, there was a lot of solitary time and there's a Mm. lot of solitary time engineering if you're an engineer. Um, For me, it's, uh, there's a, there's a couple components to it. Um, One is just time and stress. Uh, When you're developing a game, the best part is the beginning where you got nothing and all of a sudden you have something and there's that excitement of pulling something out of the mud and excavating it. But making games is a long-term prospect. It's an expensive prospect. And when you're done, you're not done. When you ship a game, that's not really finished. And it's not the expectation that it's finished. Something's going to go wrong. You're going to be extending it. You're going to be responding to problems. And you're going to be interacting with people who generally assume it's like a, it's a live entity. There's the perception that a game can change, that you can fix it or alter it or do something else to it to, uh, to shape it to what the audience wants. And almost no other media is that way. Mm. Books aren't. Music isn't. Audiobooks aren't. You get what you get. And if you don't like it, you give it one star and you move on. <laughs> Games aren't the same. Um, and the amount of work it takes to make a game is, is, is exceptionally high. Because you're always solving problems you've never solved before. And you're trying to estimate how, okay, I, you're, millions of dollars are at stake. You're planning over a series of years. And you're trying to land you know, a rocket on a launch pad very precisely knowing almost none of the variables. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a stressful sort of situation. Um, and there's, a, there's not a lot of old people in the games industry. If you, if you look around, there's just not that many. Right. Um, audiobooks and books are different. And for an audiobook, you know almost exactly how long it's going to take you. There's not a lot of unknowns, you know, apart from how something is pronounced. And when you're done, you're done. You ship the book, and if somebody likes it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. And you merrily get on with your life to the next one. And you get to do that really repeatedly. Mm. Um, And I think there's another component to it, which is that uh, you're interacting with book people and book people are good people. I, I, there's something about the act of reading that generally makes people empathetic because you're, the story is not about you. It's about someone else and you're relating to someone else. That's like the fundamental concept of storytelling. I'm relating to another person. It's just innately empathetic. Yeah. So my experience with people who care about books and read books and write books and narrate books is that they are all pretty empathetic people and very diverse. 
And that experience is actually really, really pleasant. That's uh, so often somebody will ask me or somebody like me, you know, YouTubers and podcasters and other content creators, because that's the crowd I, I end up hanging out with. <laughs> uh, they'll ask us, what, what's your favorite thing about what you do? And you almost don't want to say it because it's such a cliche, but often cliches are cliches for a reason. And it always comes out like I've met so many great people. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I've made friends, I've made connections. I, you know, I, I do this or that convention and I get, yeah, I get to see these people twice a year. And, uh, and that will often come out as the favorite thing about, um, about this, this particular line of work. So that kind of echoes, I think. What yeah. It's really saying. special. Yeah. So, so moving then from you're a narrator to, all right, I'm going to write my own thing. We kind of touched on this in the beginning of the conversation where you said, I wrote this for me. Um, did you need something different uh, during the pandemic? Was this, was this like a, a Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and the Inklings situation where they said, well, nobody's writing the books we want to read. I guess it's up to us. Was that kind of um, what we're looking at? I, I wish it was, but not really. Not really. Um, it was definitely something that I was interested in and mm. wished for out of media. But um, I tried to write a book for a very long time. Um, ever since I was in high school, I wanted to write a fantasy novel. Mm. And uh, I was just never successful for a variety of different reasons. Um, from, you know, over ambition to not being honest about what sort of process would actually get me to the end of writing one. So um, I had participated in a lot of national novel writing months, um, never successfully until this one. <laughs> nice. Um, but a friend of mine who's a narrator uh, named Avon Shore Kind uh, convinced me to do another national novel writing month. And uh, I said, okay, I'll do it if you do it. So she agreed. She also finished a book. She wrote a book to make sure I wrote a book which is a pretty great act of friendship. That's a good friend, yeah. Um, and uh, But both of us really ultimately chose things that were like low stakes for us personally to write. Like um, the idea for Legends and Lattes is obviously ridiculous. An orc opens a coffee shop. That's the idea. And it sounds like a joke if you say it. The book is not a joke and it ended up being written pretty earnestly, but the scale of the concept is very, very small, which made it, if to me, it felt like, okay, well, this is achievable. For once, I'm going to try and do something that isn't like the great American novel, and I'm not hanging my my self-worth on this book. <laughs> sure. It's just a silly idea, and if I don't finish, fine. But maybe because there's no pressure, maybe I'll finish. And that ended up being the case. So uh, it definitely was responsive to what I wanted, but it was not a case where I was like, boy, the world really needs this right now. I'm going to fill this hole that I perceive. I didn't have that level of foresight. It was much more inward focused. Right. Yeah. You're not trying to fill a hole for the world. Uh, just what me. about for yourself? Yeah. Just, just for yourself. Me. It was something that I, that I, I really thought it was cathartic and enjoyable to write, to write about basically adults solving problems in an adult way and generally being good to each other mm. where, uh, the ultimate result made me feel good. It, you know, can we, let's talk about Bake Off for a second. <laughs> because I think a lot of people, this is a very popular show. If you don't watch it, shame on you. Uh, but the absolute utter charm of Bake Off, uh, when it really took the U.S. by storm, what, five, seven years ago, something like that, mm -hmm. was 
hey, here's a competition show where people are showing real skill and they want to win and they're working their hardest every week and they don't hate each other for it. They don't hate <laughs> each other. There's no villain. <laughs> There's I mean, no Paul Hollywood is as close as you get. Right. Uh, and even he is. Uh, he, even know, he doles out handshakes. Head. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, yeah. I just love that idea. of. I um, liked the idea that it's possible to have a story you care, care about and drama that you care about where nobody has to die or be hurt for you to be invested. Because, I mean, I get, people get very invested in the show. You care about the people and you want to see them succeed. But you don't have to hate anybody in order for yeah. that to happen. And I think there's just something really compelling about that. And you hand that to an editor and they're going to say, well, where's the conflict? I, uh, well, well, not every editor, but, you know, you hand it to uh, a lot of editors and they'll say, oh, this, there, there's not enough conflict. I need, I need more yeah. attention. Up I the need stakes. More Up drama. the stakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, we've, we've had plenty of stakes. Actually, that will, that's a good lead into my next question, which is what you learned from audiobook narration that you took into writing your own book because as you said you were doing a lot of high stakes uh, you know the, mm -hmm. the the universe is going to implode if the hero doesn't you know solve yeah. x problem right so so your book looks smells feels very different from those uh mm -hmm. but i have no doubt that you learned a lot of lessons from just the sheer amount of narration that you did the number of stories and the the breadth of stories that you had to read absolutely what do you off the top of your head do you have any lessons that you learned from that oh yeah oh, oh yeah okay. oh. the weird thing is that they're they're difficult to transfer to other people but there's mm. two main really powerful takeaways from a narration if you do it professionally or you read out loud a lot um, one is that when you're reading thousands of hours of other people's work, a variable quality and edit editorial state and concept and approach, um, you are internalizing what you learn from that in a way you don't when you read it in your head. Hmm. Because you're there to translate the author's intent and get it to the listener. You're trying to make sure you get across what they're trying to say emotionally, you know, at the at, at every level of the the prose and you just don't do that the same way when you read to yourself if something's boring you kind of skim through it or mm -hmm. maybe you were distracted while you're reading this conversation and you didn't really experience the emotion of this dialogue exchange because you're just kind of breezing through um but what happens when you do that is it really clarifies for you what you like and what you don't like it basically so it's not really objective but very subjectively you're crystallizing your opinion on writing in a way that you don't get to do without doing way more writing because to arrive at those conclusions when you write you have to write a lot and you have to write a lot of different things and solve a lot of different problems that you might not encounter until way further down the road mm. but you're encountering all kinds of problem solving that other authors have undertaken and you get to steal lessons from that and then just at the very simple level, like I say, you learn what you like and what you don't like. I don't like long-winded exposition. I don't like overbearing world building. Um, I, uh, I don't like a conversation that doesn't contribute to, uh, to exposing character. You learn all kinds of things about that. And then when you come time to write, you've, you've already thought about these things in a way that you might not have before. Mm. Good example is like you come across the phrase... Um, he let out a breath he didn't know he was holding. You like have seen this phrase like a thousand times right. because it just somehow finds its way into books. We just kind of sort of add it as a nervous tick <laughs> and you don't think about it. So when you sit down to write, you're like, this is a thing that belongs in a story and you just put it in because you've heard it somewhere before. 
But once you have read that out loud five times in the same book, you start to think about whether you would ever really want to include that in your own book. And you arrive at a conclusion. That's just a high-level <laughs> version of the, of, the, uh, of the concept. The other thing that happens is that your interior voice becomes very, very precise. Uh, once you've read aloud many, many hundreds of hours, you can hear exactly what you will sound like before you have said the words. You know what dialogue sounds like, you know what people's voices sound like, you know where the tension lies in the middle of the sentence and how you're going to express it as the, the sentence winds to its close. Um, and a lot of authors will say that one of the most powerful ways to edit your own work is to read it aloud because you hear these false notes or you hear a word that's repeated or you hear how clunky the dialogue sounds and then you can fix it. But you couldn't tell when you were writing it. Well, the cool thing is if, if you have that developed interior voices, you get to hear it before you write it, which saves a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so I find that there's a very distinct difference between what I wrote before I was a narrator and what I wrote after. And what I wrote after is basically just more honest. I'm gonna, I, I wanna run a, an idea by you, but it'll take a story first. Um, and I, I want to get your take and see if you agree with this. When I, I worked in marketing for several years as a copywriter and then moved into uh, content creation, I was doing podcasts and YouTube videos, lots of YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we brought in this uh, whole crew of um, interns, uh, marketing interns, and I was supposed to teach them a class on writing for video. And uh, so I started preparing this course that I was going to give them and what kind of exercises do we want to do? And, and I thought, well, hang on, Let, I'll have them rewrite uh, some form of uh, writing that's meant for the eyes, right? Uh, so this is, it's not audio. It's, uh, so I pulled up New York Times, I pulled up the Atlantic, National Review, and some of these like newspapers and magazines with really good writers in them. And the idea behind the exercise was, okay, so rewrite what they wrote for the page for voice. And I found myself getting really frustrated because I couldn't find a good passage to use for the interns. And then it hit me. I'm not going to find one with these really talented, you know, kind of uh, national writers uh, because the writing they do is already written for voice that's yep. it's it's that's how good it is is that you don't need to change it and bang this light goes off in my head that there is no difference between good writing for the page and good writing for the voice or you know writing for yep. the eyes versus the ears is I that 100 agree yeah 100 so? agree i mean i think text is an imperfect representation of oral storytelling when you're talking about fiction mm. we told stories before we wrote them down written language came afterward and we did our best to pin it to the page and you're doing you're having this act of retranslating into its natural state as far as i'm concerned what we want is ultimately the spoken voice we're just trying to pull it out of this word salad and this punctuation into something that we innately would originally have consumed and so I find that all of the writing that I like best is always better read aloud, that it's, it's shaped for being read aloud. Um, the authors I like the best, it's, it's, that, it's the best translation of the mm. spoken word. How much, like on that note, how much success do we attribute for our favorite books to their audiobooks for the last 20, 25 years or something? You know, I'm thinking of something like, 
the Wheel of Time was massively popular, but you ask a lot of Wheel of Time readers what their favorite way is to consume it and say, oh, yeah, no, I got in through the audiobooks. Uh, yeah, well, think about like Harry Potter. I mean, yeah, those audiobooks were just and... ludicrously successful. And then you have the whole war between Jim Dale and Stephen Fry. Um, <laughs> we won't get into that. That's a fun one. It's, it's, a, it's, let's just say it's a fun war. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, okay, so where, where to now? Do you continue to narrate? Is that something that you are you bouncing between writing and narrating? Are you shifting your focus again to just purely writing? What are you doing? What are you up to these um, days? Narrating is still ostensibly my full time job, and mm. I had a um, I had a pretty full dance card and did not expect to be writing. So I'm scheduled out into 26 anyway. So wow. I've got. I got a lot of books to narrate. What I've been trying to do is reshape so I get a little bit more time to write because my writing schedule for the last two books was just in the evening after work and write a chapter a day until it's done. And that's doable, but I would prefer that that is not the way that I write. So I'm trying to rebalance it to get to a slightly less, I'm trying to, to, to scale down the number of audiobooks I do a little bit to make sure that I have sufficient room for that. Um, because I like both. Narrating is easier. It's infinitely easier. Mm. Somebody else already baked the cake. All I have yep. to do is frost it. But if I have to come up with the whole recipe, that's way more work. There's so many baking analogies going on. I know. I know. I was just trying perfect. to stay thematically consistent here. <laughs> <laughs> Side note, did you pick up baking after you started watching Bake Off? I did not. I did oh, not. Okay. My right. my right. wife is the baker. I am the cook. Um, my wife has uh, has made plenty of baked goods, especially during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, was, uh, after about two years of watching Bake Off, I was like, huh, I'm starting to itch a little bit. But you know, I guess that's that's probably similar to man. I've read a lot of these books. I I really want to try my hand at these, right? <laughs> so it's uh, maybe not so far off, I suppose. All right, so. I, I want to shift now to talk about the book that just came out. It's the sequel. So Legends and Lattes was huge, 2022, maybe uh, the most talked, well, one of the most talked about books of 2022. Uh, and now you've got Bookshops and Bone Dust. So for those who haven't read Legends and Lattes, uh, maybe now is a good time to bounce. I don't know how spoilery it's going to be, but maybe you can set up book two for those who are already fans. Um, so Bookshops and Bone Dust is actually a prequel to Legends and Lattes. Um, it was also not the book I was going to write. It's the fourth attempt at writing the second book. Um, but it's set 20 years before Legends and Lattes. Um, if you haven't read Legends and Lattes, uh, the high pass is it, it's about a orc mercenary in her forties who is tired of the adventuring lifestyle and retires to open a coffee shop in a city that has never heard of coffee before. That's the that's the basic gist for Legends and Lattes. So Bookshops and Bone Dust is set about 20 years earlier when she is super into adventuring and very gung-ho and kind of at the beginning of her career. And uh, she is uh, she has recently signed on with this mercenary company called Rackham's Ravens, and they're pursuing this necromancer across the hinterlands. And uh, she's headstrong and gets ahead of herself and is immediately injured and sidelined and dumped off in a crummy beach town to recuperate until they circle back around on their way back. And so she's thwarted and bored, immediately runs afoul of the law and uh, befriends the owner of this failing local bookshop, the, a very, <laughs> the very foul-mouthed owner of a failing <laughs> local bookshop. Um, 
And at a high level, it's sort of a story that is in a very meta way about, it's a prequel about the fact that prequels matter, that the blind alleys we go down and the relationships that fail and the things we do that don't work out and ultimately aren't for us at a given time in life may be foundational for something later that they're ultimately like seeds that blossom in unexpected ways, maybe decades after the fact. Um, and it's also about books and stories and the way that we connect to each other through stories. Because when you see something of yourself represented in a book and you understand that someone else had the same experience, it's kind of this very profoundly, uh, it's, it's a very profound way of feeling less alone Oh, Duncan started experience. on uh, Brent Weeks's Blood Mirror. Yeah, that that was my wake up call for that idea. Yeah. Um, there's just so much that you can find out about a person from their response to a book. Hmm. Um, so that's that's the general gist for bookshops and bone dust. Also, there's there's a lot of skeletons in it, but um, <laughs> as a just as one more selling point, just just as a thing, you know. <laughs> you know, I uh, I dated a girl in college who loved skulls not actual skulls, but she just loved the motif and yeah. they were all over everything she owned. Um, so I, I'll, I'll uh, have to <laughs> let her know. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe I haven't spoken to her in 15 years, but uh, I'm sure she'd appreciate me reaching out again. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> so that's bookshops and bone dust. It came out. Uh, well, we're recording this on December 12th. That came out last month. I think this episode comes out in December, but I'm not 100%. Anyway, regardless, people should go check it out. Um, and uh, and if you haven't read, uh, if you haven't read uh, Legends and Lattes, I was very serious at the beginning, go give it a shot. If you like, uh, if you like lower stakes, fun, it, it's, I don't know, it's charming and, and wonderful. And here I am selling your book to you, Travis. It's uh chicken soup books i call them chicken soup books when i get them which is rare when i get them to narrate i just it's just something i read and i feel better after i read it yeah well i i want to end this maybe by uh asking you a little bit more about uh about narration and maybe we can take this in the direction of what if somebody's thinking i want to do that can you give us three minutes on you know Here's what you got to consider. Here's what you need. Um, sure. If you, if you feel like, ah, oh, I'd like to hop on ACX and see about giving this yeah. a try. So uh, the first thing is uh, you should take a book and you should go sit in a corner and you should read it out loud to yourself for an hour. And if you don't like that, then you should not do this job. This is just filter this, filter your, filter this out at the beginning, because if you're not on board with that, this is not going to be the work for you. Uh, the second thing is that your voice doesn't matter so much as your ability to narrate, mm -hmm. your intuitive knowledge of what's going on on the page. Um, so uh, one thing that's usually helpful for people who are starting narration is to join one of the communities of narrators. And there are a few on Facebook and elsewhere. And there's always people who coach there and engage an hour with one of those coaches and figure out what you don't know. Like, mm -hmm. what do I what is important for me? If I want to do narration, what, what do I need to work on? Where, where am I now and where do I need to go? Um, and then the next is that if you want to do it, having a walk-in closet is extremely helpful. <laughs> having a space to narrate is one of the, the things that is downplayed, but is, is one of the most important components of being able to work for yourself as a narrator. If you need a place that you can treat 
for sound, and a walk-in closet with clothes in it is one of the most straightforward ways to do that, and you will save yourself a lot of pain if you have that already covered. Um, I put, I have some videos on my YouTube that go through all of the equipment. The actual mm. financial investment to be a narrator is not especially high. The technical requirements aren't especially high, but space, deciding whether it's something you actually really, really want to do, and taking the temperature on how far you need to go to be able to make an acceptable product from a coach is probably the main things I would say. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, I like what you said that it's not so much about your voice. It's what you can do with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you can you interpret a scene? Can you modulate your voice? Exactly. You don't have to do every accent perfectly or something, but can you create a, a a specific feeling for this character? Exactly. Can you can you analyze what makes somebody respond emotionally to the mm -hmm. human voice? Almost nobody who is a narrator likes the sound of their voice at the outset. I think one of the cool things that happens if you do narrate and you speak out loud for a living is that eventually you become comfortable with your voice and you're just okay with it. It's like, this is what I sound like. I'm good with it, which means that you can lean into what's important about your voice instead of trying to sound like somebody else that you think does sound cool. Absolutely. I, I've told this story before, but when I got hired on my first job in radio, in the interview, they said, thanks very much. You got the job. You're going to be a producer. You'll never be behind the microphone. You sound terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really took that to heart. Um, and I, I was, I was pretty upset because this is what I wanted to do. And um, eventually, I, you know, I worked hard and three, four months later, I did get on the air and I got to read a news segment. And then I, I put it on a CD and took it home. And I was like, I want to listen to that broadcast. And I just cried and cried and cried at how dumb <laughs> I sound. Oh, that guy was so right. I should never have been on the air. And eventually, oh yeah, that goes away. <laughs> It does so, go away, which is nice yeah. to know. Oh, it's vital. It's vital to know. It's, uh, it'll, it gets better, right? Isn't that the, it does. the saying? It gets better. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Travis. Uh, we, we've got we to gotta perform for the people. So in your best narrator voice, uh, I, I, I want to do, we've been, we've been singing the praises of uh, kind of lower stakes, intimate stories, but no, I'm going, the universe is going to end. Um, the hero has walked into the giant, uh, uh, we'll call it a bookstore called the legendarium and, and the villain who's behind the counter says to our hero, you know, what, what should our hero's name be? Um, I, I, I don't know. It's going <laughs> to begin with a J it's going to begin with a J it's going to be Jake or Jace or James or Jack. It's just, it's inevitably a J let's go, you know, we'll go firefly. We'll call him Jane. Uh, right. So the villain says, welcome, Jane. Or no, it's, uh, oh, yeah. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the Legendarium. And I want that because I'm going to put that on the front of this episode. All right. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the Legendarium. <laughs> love it. I love it. Okay. Well, now that we've made you dance a little bit, Travis, and uh, I've thoroughly embarrassed myself. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, coming on and sharing a little bit of wisdom. I, I hope this helps people get to know you a little bit better. Um, and what I want to do in the future, if you're game for it, is uh, have you on for an author shelf episode. And, and I'll explain to you what that is later, but we can talk about that down the road um, and make sure that, uh, that people get to know one of their favorite authors in a new way. I'd be uh, delighted to. This has been a ton of fun. Anyway, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, again, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I didn't mention it at the top of the episode, but make sure you go to thelegendarium.com for all of our stuff. 
including uh, calendar for future episodes. You can check out all the past episodes there, as well as links to Discord and Patreon if you want to support the show. And make sure you check out the uh, show notes for this episode where I will put links to uh, to your books, Travis. So Legends and Lattes, and then of course, uh, Bookshops and Bone Dust will be uh, in the description for this episode. So make sure you check those out. Thanks everybody for listening, and I will see you next time. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody.